Hello, ladies. Hello, and welcome to the opening day of Women in the Word. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is a great honor, and it's a great joy to be here with all of you studying God's Word together. I also want to give a big welcome to those of you that are streaming at South Campus. Thank you so much for joining us today. And a big shout out to all of those that are uh, joining us online in home groups or uh, in virtual groups uh, on the internet throughout our city and even our state and I think maybe throughout the world. So welcome, welcome one and all. Thank you for being a part of the study. Now, I love opening day of Women in the Word. I love it. I've been doing it since maybe the beginning of time. But anyway, the opening day is always so fun for me and exciting. I can hardly sleep, hardly slept last night. But I know that for some of you, it can really be hard. Opening day can be a hard thing, especially if this is your first time ever to be at Women in the Word. You are brave. And I was reminded of this recently when my granddaughter Finley uh, started sixth grade. She left elementary school and she went to middle school for the first time. And so I went by to see her after school and I said, Finley, how did it go? And she got big tears in her eyes and she said, Grammy, it was horrible. And I said, what? She goes, I was so scared. My heart was pounding and my palms were sweaty and my eyes are going left to right, left to right, trying to find, is there any friends in any of my classes? And I said, well, did you find someone? No, I don't have one friend in any of my classes or at lunch. Yikes. Even I know that's pretty hard to eat alone at lunch. So I said, well, Finley, I'm going to pray for you that you make some new friends in your classes and that you find someone to sit with at lunch. So I went by the next day, and I said, Finley, how was today? I wasn't very hopeful, but she said... It was good. It was so good, Grammy. I met this girl. She's in three of my classes. She sits next to me in art, and I think she will be a new friend. And I found this really sweet, kind girl, and she is sitting with me at lunch. God, you are so good. So if you came today and your heart was pounding and your palms were sweaty and your eyes were going left to right, left to right, trying to find someone that you know in this place, I want to say please come back next week. Please come back because I'm going to pray for you that you find someone that you know or that you make a new friend in your small group. I know that the leadership of Women in the Word and your small group leaders, they've all been working very hard to make this a warm and welcoming place to be as we study God's Word. And we're studying God's Word uh, together this semester by studying the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament, and it is a beautiful, profound, and amazing book. In fact, one writer said that it's the fifth gospel of the New Testament. Those first four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about Jesus' ministry on earth as he walked on earth. But Hebrews tells us of the ministry of Jesus now as he sits by the Father and reigns from heaven. So it is an outstanding jewel in the New Testament. We will see and hear Jesus in Hebrews. We're going to come to know him 
better. He's going to be bigger, and our faith will be encouraged and strengthened, and you will find yourself filled to overflowing with devotion and worship for Jesus. Now, Hebrews can be a bit difficult to read and understand, especially the first time through when you're reading it. So hang in there. And today I'm going to give you some background information that I hope will help us as we study Hebrews. So let me say a quick word about study questions. Each week you will have three pages covering the Bible verses in Hebrews that we're gonna be studying that week. And the teachers, we've all worked very hard at explaining some of the difficult parts that you'll read in Hebrews. But if you are still confused, um, just know that when the teacher gets up here to do the lecture time, that she will explain it and clear it up for you. And by the way, this semester, the teachers are Lynn Kitchen, Shelley Davis, Amy Foster, Misty Denman, and Vanita Jones, and myself. So you do the study questions before you come to small group each week, and these questions are for you. They're for you. They're to stimulate excitement and interest in thinking and understanding of the Bible verses. So before you begin, you might want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding and insight, just like the psalmist did in Psalm 119.18. I hope all of you have an extra verse sheet. First one, Psalm 119, the psalmist says to God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And the law there, that is the Bible. So ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. But if you find a question that you just really don't understand, it just seems too hard, skip it. Skip it and go on to the next. We don't want you to be worried about getting the right answer. We want you to be excited about God's word speaking to you. God's word speaking to you. And then I want you to come and please share with your small group, even if you've never studied Hebrews before, even if you've never even studied anything in the Bible before, the Holy Spirit can give you some amazing understanding and wisdom, great insights that you want to share with your small group. But most of all, just enjoy God's word. So let's move on. A little pitch for the questions. Let's move on to the background of Hebrews, and then we're going to look at chapter 1. So let's get started. And the first question is, who wrote Hebrews? Who is the author of Hebrews? Now, I do want the author of Hebrews is unknown, but he wasn't unknown to those people that he was writing to. They knew him, and he knew them. And we know that on your verse sheet, Hebrews 13, um, he tells us in verses 23 and 24, it says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So he knows them, and they know him. But he doesn't sign his book. His name is not in the book. And so pretty quickly, um, the following generations lose the identity of the author. And that has led to great speculation throughout the centuries. Who wrote Hebrews? So some say Paul. They say Paul wrote it. He wrote many letters in the New Testament, but Paul always signs his name in his letters. And so for me, it's pretty unlikely that he would have written Hebrews without signing his name. 
Others say Barnabas, that Barnabas might have written it. He, uh, we find him in the book of Acts. He was a friend of Paul's, a traveling companion. He went with Paul on the first missionary journey. We know that Barnabas was from Cyprus, so he would know Greek. And I'm told that Hebrews is written in excellent, beautiful Greek. He was also Jewish, and he was from the tribe of Levi, so he would understand the Levitical priesthood, which much is written about in the book of Hebrews. His name, Barnabas, also means son of encouragement. And I've just always liked Barnabas whenever I've been reading about him uh, in Acts, and so I kind of lean uh, towards him as the author. Not a very academic way to pick someone, but anyway, some say Apollos. Now, Apollos, we also meet him in Acts, and he is talking and preaching, and it says in Acts 18, 24, it's not on your verse sheet, but you can look up, 18, 24 tells us that he was eloquent and mighty in the scripture. But if you look down a few verses, it also tells us that Aquila and Priscilla took him aside to explain the way of God more accurately. Probably this means they were teaching him some things about Jesus that he did not know or understand. Now, Aquila and Priscilla, they were Jewish Christians that came from Rome to Corinth. And Paul meets them there. He becomes really great friends with them. He even lives with them for quite a while and takes them with him to Ephesus when he goes. So some think Priscilla may have written the book of Hebrews. Um, I said this to Anne, because she's a woman, her name would have been left off. Makes sense. I threw this theory out to my husband, and he said, well, could be, because Priscilla was a formidable woman in the New Testament. So maybe, Priscilla, when I get to glory, the first thing I'm going to ask is, who wrote Hebrews? And if they say Priscilla, I will not be disappointed. But as one early Christian scholar said, only God knows the author of Hebrews. So it's not really profitable to discuss this any further, but I kind of like speculating. So if you are like I, please see me afterwards or give me a call and we'll talk about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Also, who is um, the uh, audience? Well, it's not clearly stated either, but because the title is Hebrews, most think that it is written to Jewish Christians. Uh, Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, those words are all interchangeable. And we know that they were Christians from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, and that's on your verse sheet. It says, therefore, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So that, that title there, holy brothers, that's what believers called one another. So they would seem to be Christians. Also, the author of Hebrews, he uses many Old Testament references. You're going to see them throughout the book of Hebrews. And he uh, makes his points with the Old Testament references. And he writes as if his audience clearly understands the traditions and the ways and the culture of Jews, of Hebrews. That also, by the way, is what makes it a little difficult for us because we don't understand the culture and the ways and the um, Old Testament quite as well as the Jews. So it would seem that these are Jewish Christians and that they are second generation believers. They appear to have been believers for a while, 
but some are still very spiritually immature. We're gonna read about that in a couple of weeks. And we also know that they have been suffering hardship and even persecution. We'll see that later on in the book of Hebrews. And that persecution, that helps us to um, put a date on when it was written. We think that it was written around the mid-60s AD. That is when the Roman emperor Nero was persecuting greatly the Christians. We also think that it was written before 70 AD because that is when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And these events are not mentioned. In fact, temple and temple worship is talked about in Hebrews. So these Jewish Christians, they're weary and they're wavering in their Christian faith. It seems that they want to turn back to the Jewish rituals uh, and law or add them to their Christian faith. So the author of Hebrews, his purpose in writing to them is to strengthen the faith of these weary, wavering Jewish believers. He's saying throughout Hebrews, do not add anything to Jesus. Follow Jesus, only Jesus. Follow Jesus alone. Now, we understand, especially as women, adding and embellishing, trying to make something better by adding a little extra, you know, it could be that bracelet or maybe a scarf on your outfit or even that new throw pillow on the couch. We kind of like to embellish. And when I was writing this lesson and thinking about it, a picture popped in my mind of my granddaughters. It was taken about a year ago. Um, we're gonna put that up on the screen. They love to dress up in my old clothes and jewelry and accessories. They like to embellish. And so you see in the picture Hallie, she is in the navy blue. She likes color and bling. And so she's got that turquoise sash on and she's got my sparkly silver wedding shoes on and a silver clutch. And then in the middle, there's Finley. Um, she's a little understated, so she's just got on long white gloves. And the, dre the dress, by the way, um, that she's wearing, that's what I wore to my rehearsal dinner. Um, you can tell it was a casual 70s look going on there. And then there's little Harper. She's my girly girl, and so she wants to wear the highest heels that I have. So she's got those cranberry heels on, and she's got a hat that my was my grandmother's from the 1940s and a colorful purse. You can tell they like to add and embellish. And then so that we don't leave my grandson out, um, I've got a picture of him. We'll just throw that up real quickly. Um, he's fishing, but he also has a few little embellishments on as well. So we like to add and supplement, but the author of Hebrews says, no, no, do not add anything to the worship of Jesus. He alone is superior to anything or anyone else. He's greater than any other religion or philosophy or idea. So the author of Hebrews makes a case for Jesus. He says he is greater than, and, and this is the list, the, the order we're gonna see in Hebrews. Jesus is greater than prophets, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than priests, greater than sacrifices. In fact, he is the perfect once and for all sacrifice and he brings a better covenant. Now better is a word that we see 13 times in Hebrews as the author makes these comparisons showing that Jesus 
is superior. And then interspersed among these comparisons, we find five warning passages. Um, and then following those are five passages of encouragement, beautiful words of encouragement that we're going to all want to memorize. These five warning passages, though, they have to do with the word, uh, turning away, drifting away, ignoring it, um, changing it. And their warning passages do not do that. So um, this pretty much takes us through the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. And then the author says, so now that you know all this about Jesus, what is your response? How will you respond to Jesus? And the answer, in faith. Respond to Jesus in faith. And so he begins in chapter 11 to tell us all about faith, um, what it is. He explains it. He even gives us examples of the faith of real men and women in the Bible. And then he talks about persevering, patient faith, how to persevere in our faith, and that's chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, the last chapter, he gives us practical ways to live out our faith. And so that is a uh, simple outline of Hebrews. I hope that will help you as we go through this to understand. Um, and I want to take just a couple more minutes to give us a little Old Testament history, which um, might help us to understand some of these references and Jewish traditions. So I want to begin with Abraham. Abraham, we meet him in chapter 12 of Genesis, and Abraham is called the father of the Israelites or the patriarch of the Hebrews. Now, um, in chapter 12, we see God telling Abraham to leave his country and to follow him, go to a place that he would show him. And Abraham obeys God. And so God makes a covenant promise with Abraham. He says three things. I will give you land, specific land. That's Israel today. He says, I will give you many descendants. That's all the Jewish people today. And he says, I will bless you, Abraham, and all nations will be blessed through you. And that is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to earth, God the Son, born of Mary. And if you go through Mary's lineage all the way back, it comes to Abraham. So Jesus is from Abraham. And he walked on earth, died on the cross, shed his blood to make atonement for our sin so that anyone who believes in him has salvation. He is a blessing to all people. He comes through Abraham. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons and their wives and children, um, they grow and multiply to become the nation Israel. Now, that little group of 12 sons and their families, they go to Egypt because there's a famine where they're living. And while they're there, they are enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians um, for 400 years. During that time of slavery, they multiply greatly until there's probably 2 million or more Israelites. And they call out to God and they say, deliver us from this oppression. And so God sends Moses. Moses comes on the scene and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Let God's people go. And Pharaoh says no. And so God, through some pretty um, dramatic, miraculous plagues, convinces Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And so Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt 
And we see some pretty big miracles happen as God protects and provides for his people. The first one is the parting of the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea so that they can walk through on dry land, and then when those Egyptian soldiers who are chasing after them, they get in the middle of that, the waters come back on top of it. God protecting his people. And so Moses takes them onto Mount Sinai. Now two important things happen at Mount Sinai. First, God gives Moses the pattern for the tabernacle. That's that fancy tent where uh, the Spirit of God will dwell because God wants to be in the midst of his people. God has always wanted to be in relationship with people. It began way back in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he walked with them. And it's gone all the way through history until today God wants to be in relationship with you and me. He wants to be in relationship with us. He is pursuing us. And then the second important thing that happens is the law. God gives Moses the law. Now that's the Ten Commandments and also the traditions they were to follow. And along with that, how the Levitical priesthood would be set up. Now, the priests were very important because they offered sacrifices on the altar to make atonement for the sin of the Israelites so the Israelites could stay in relationship with their holy God. So they um, get the law, they get the pattern for the tabernacle, and they move out and go towards the promised land. And when they get there, the Israelites are afraid They do not trust God. They do not have faith in God. And so they refuse to go in. And God says, okay, well then wander in the wilderness for 40 years and your children will go into the land that I promised Abraham and they will settle. And that's what we studied last year. Those of you that were a part of it, uh, Joshua leads the children into the promised land and they settle. And then this summer we learned that The uh, Israelites were ruled by God through judges, and we looked at some judges this summer in the summer Bible study. Then they were ruled, that lasted about 300 years, then they were ruled by kings, and the kings, some were very good. They loved God and followed God, but some turned away from God. They didn't love him, they turned away, and the people turned away from God as well, until after about 400 years, God allows them to go into captivity, first with Assyria, then the Babylonians, then the Persians. But God, in his grace and mercy, after a specific amount of time, allows them to go back to Jerusalem where they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple and they begin to worship God again. And that closes up the Old Testament history until about 400 years later, um, the New Testament opens up with the birth of Jesus Christ. So I hope that um, helps you a little bit to understand some of what uh, we're gonna be talking about with this Old Testament um, culture and Old Testament verses. But I know what some of you are saying. You are saying with all these priests and prophets and Old Testament, what does Hebrews have for me today? How is Hebrews relevant to me? Well, Hebrews is very relevant for you and me today in 2021. Just like those Jewish Christians were wavering, we too can be wavering with wholeheartedly walking with Jesus, Jesus alone, without 
adding something else to our faith. We can be wavering with that. Um, We wanna follow Jesus and add on maybe relationships. Maybe it's our husband or children. Or maybe it's Jesus and our savings account. Or maybe Jesus and our work. Or Jesus and some lifestyle choice. Anything that becomes as important as Jesus, we've added that on to our walk with Jesus. Or maybe some of you might need a strong warning. You're thinking about trying something else instead of Jesus. Maybe put Jesus aside and try a new self-help book or a new philosophy, or you have a friend that wants you to get involved in something else. Hebrews is telling us, no, don't do it. Don't turn away from Jesus. He alone can bring you peace or satisfaction or wholeness. We all want to be whole. Or maybe you are just weary, like the Hebrew Christians. Life is hard, ladies. Life is hard, and we need encouragement to persevere in the faith. Hebrews has that encouragement for us. Hebrews has the encouragement that each one of us needs. So let's open our Bible now. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to be looking at verse 1. You know, the author of Hebrews begins with a power-packed, overwhelming description of Jesus. So let's look at verse one. Let me read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God spoke to our fathers. That is talking about their Jewish ancestors, those forefathers, the people we just talked about from the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of them. God was not silent. God spoke to them through the prophets. He revealed himself through the prophets in different ways, at different times throughout the ages, through poetry and prose and visions and symbols. The whole Old Testament is God speaking and revealing himself. He wants us to know him. So the prophets were a good thing. But no one prophet had the total revelation of God. It was bits and pieces. But now, now God has spoken through Jesus. It says now in the last days. Let me just tell real quickly, those last days, that means from the time when Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven until Jesus returns again at the second coming. That time period is the last days. And the author and those people in Hebrews, they were in the last days. We are in the last days, waiting for Jesus to come back that second time. Excuse me. So Jesus is the total revelation of God. God has spoken through Jesus, the whole revelation. Jesus is God's language. God speaks in Jesus. Jesus is the messenger, And he is also the message of love and salvation and redemption and hope and eternal life now and in glory. So Jesus is greater than the prophets. They were important, they were good, but they only had a part of the revelation. And the author of Hebrews is going to point out now how Jesus is superior to the prophets through seven statements who tell us who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the person of Christ 
and the work of Christ. Seven, by the way, most of you have probably heard this, that that is God's number. It signifies completion or perfection or fullness. And we are gonna see the full deity of Jesus in these seven statements. So let's go on and look at the first one here. So he's saying, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. Jesus is God the Son. He is the Son of God. He is the heir of all things. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. It all belongs to him. He's over all. And then next we read that through whom also he created the world. So he is the creator. The creative power belongs to Jesus. Jesus, the word, the language of God. He spoke and the universe appeared. Now we know that from Genesis 1, 3. We all know that verse. God said, let there be light and there was light. Jesus created the world in space and moving through time. And we also see that again in the New Testament when John tells us about Jesus. This is on your verse sheet, chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus has the creative power, and not just this present universe, but the one to come. The one that we read about in Revelation 21, that new heaven and new earth that Jesus will create when he comes back again. Jesus has the creative power. Let's go on and then look at the um, first part of verse three. We're gonna see uh, three and four, two statements here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of the glory of God. You know, the best example of that really is the sun. The sun shines and the light comes down and we can't separate the light from the sun. The light is the radiance of the sun, just like Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. All that we can see of God's glory shines through Jesus. Now, don't be mistaken that we're talking about reflecting. Jesus isn't reflecting God's glory like the moon reflects the light from the sun. He is part of God's glory. All that we can see of God's glory shines through Jesus. What beautiful, majestic imagery. This is Jesus. And then the fourth one there, he's the exact imprint of his nature, of his character. This has the meaning of a signet ring. Some of you may have looked this up and seen it, but the king had a signet ring, and when he would send out a document, they'd put a little a blob of wax, and he'd put the signet ring in it, and it would make an exact imprint of his ring. Exact representation of his ring. That's Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see exactly what the Father is like. He is the exact representation of God's nature, of God's character. When we look at Jesus and see the Father, this is why Jesus could say to the disciples in the upper room when Philip said, hey, can you just show us the Father? And on your verse sheet, you see John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen 
the Father. He is the exact representation of God's character. Jesus, the full and exact revelation of God. Number five, let's go on. It's right there in the middle of verse three, and it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the word, the world, the universe by the word of his power. It's powerful. He spoke the world into existence, and the word sustains it. He upholds it by his word. Now, the word upholds does not mean like Atlas with the earth on his back. Instead, it um, signifies this carrying to completion. Upholds is carrying to completion. And so Jesus is carrying the world to completion. He is sustaining it. He is in control. Jesus is sovereign. He's involved with all that's going on, and he will carry this on to completion. I love this. I think I might love this most of all. It's Jesus just didn't um, create the world and then sit back next to the Father and say, hey, let's see what's gonna happen. Let's see what they do. No, Jesus is in control. He is involved in what's going on in the world, and he's carrying the world on to completion completion. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has a plan. He is sustaining the world. This is our Jesus, mighty, magnificent, personal, powerful. And if he can do all this for the world, he can sustain you individually and personally. This is Jesus. And then the sixth and seventh statement, we read that at the end of verse three. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the sixth statement, here we see that Jesus has a ministry as a priest. He is making purification for sins, but he is the perfect high priest because the sacrifice that he offered for our sins was himself the perfect once and for all sacrifice, Jesus himself. Jesus, the redemptive work, belongs to him. Jesus provided purification from sin, and it opened to us the possibility of a new life, a whole life, an eternal life. And that seventh statement says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. So after his uh, resurrection and ascension, ascension, he sat down next to the Father. Now Jesus, God, who took on flesh and walked on this earth, he knows our weaknesses and our nature, he died on the cross for us. That was the work that he was to accomplish, providing salvation. That's why when he's on the cross, he says, it is finished. He provided salvation to give us new, eternal life and wholeness. And then he sat down in heaven. Just like when we are finished with our work, we sit down. This is Jesus. The author of Hebrews begins with this solid foundation of the greatness of Jesus who he is and what he's done. Really, he could have stopped right here after these three verses because they are amazing and magnificent. In fact, if you ever are kind of doubting or thinking, who is Jesus, go back and ponder and meditate on these three verses that tell us 
who Jesus is, how big and wonderful and amazing and majestic he is. So what he's saying here, the great revelation of God, he returned to heaven to reign. And so the author of Hebrews begins with this solid foundation so that we can know and think about Jesus the great revelation, he is the word. So listen to him, follow him, trust in Jesus alone. It's only Jesus, Jesus alone. So let's go on now and we're gonna look at uh, verse four and this is gonna begin the section where the author makes the case that, a, that Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than angels. He's gonna make this case two ways. One, he's gonna give us seven Old Testament Uh, scriptures so that we can see uh, that he's greater than angels and then next week with chapter 2 all of chapter 2 he's making the case through doctrinal teaching that Jesus is greater than angels so right now we are going to make some observations on these seven Old Testament scripture passages first of all you might be thinking like I thought when I read this um, why even make a case that Jesus is greater than angels. Uh, It's a no-brainer. Of course, Jesus is greater than angels. But to the Hebrew mind, angels were very esteemed, primarily because they believed angels, many angels, assisted God in giving the law to Moses. God gave the law to the angels, and then the angels brought it to Moses on Mount Sinai. We just talked about that, those Ten Commandments and other laws. He used many messengers in the angels. So he wants us to see once again, Jesus, the greater messenger. Jesus, greater than angels. Now, angels are created spiritual beings. Um, They do not have physical bodies like we do, even though sometimes in scripture, like with Mary and the angel Gabriel, uh, you can see them, but they are spiritual beings. So let's read verse four and see what the author has to say. So he's saying here that um, he became, at the, so let's start back with, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what is this name that he has inherited? Well, the first two Old Testament scriptures are going to give us the answer. And we see the first one, this is from Psalm 2, 7. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the name that he has inherited is son. God calls him son. He doesn't call the angels son. In fact, verse six, this is our next Old Testament scripture, it tells us the angels are to worship him. Let's look at that. And when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is from Psalm 97, probably verse seven. And so, Let me explain this firstborn. That doesn't mean that Jesus was born first because we know Jesus um, is God. He's eternal. He was before the beginning of time. He will be after the end of time. Jesus is eternal. Firstborn means uh, rank and honor. It can mean rank and honor, and that is 
<clears throat> true of Jesus. He's creator of the universe. He's heir of all things. He has honor, and the angels worship him. And then with verse 7, this next, this is our um, third, uh, fourth Old Testament scripture. We're going to have a comparison. And so first of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is from Psalm 104, 4. And so we see here he makes. The angels are created. And when it says winds, the winds go here and there. They're transitory. And this flame of fire, fire is temporary. Flames will go out. And this word here, ministers, he's going to use it again. That is um, what the angel's role is. They are servants. They serve God in the ways that he wants. So they are created. They are transitory. They are temporary. Jesus, on the other hand, let's look at our next fifth quote, verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved rightness, righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And so we see the role of Jesus. He's called God. He rules forever and ever with righteousness. And then let's go on to verse 10. This is Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So once again, we see the author is telling us Jesus is the creator. Angels are, are created. Jesus is the creator. And one day, this earth will be destroyed. That's what it's talking about here, the second coming of Jesus when he comes back as king and judge. There will be a new heaven and earth created by Jesus, and this old one will be rolled up like a garment and changed. But Jesus will never change. This earth might be changed, but Jesus will never change. Jesus stays the same. He's righteous. He is good. He is loving. He's providing. He is light and salvation, and his years have no end. He's eternal, forever, unchanging, forever. What do those words mean to you? The character of Jesus will never change. He is forever the same. What peace and comfort that gives me. And then we have a final comparison in verse 13. And before uh, we look at that, I just want to point out, I hope you guys notice how it says, God says, or uh, again, he says, and uh, of his son, he says, before each one of these Old Testament quotes, we see God saying, and that is the author emphasizing the divine authorship of the Old Testament. The divine author authorship of the Old Testament. And that really tells us that the Old Testament is true. And it's important. And it's necessary. We need the Old Testament to help explain the New Testament and help us explain about Jesus so that we might know Jesus better. The Old Testament is important and necessary. So let's look now at this last comparison 
13 says, verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, and here's our seventh uh, Old Testament scripture from Psalm 110, verse one, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So once again, we see Jesus is sovereign. He is king, he is ruling, and the angels, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels, they are serving Jesus. And do you see who else? The ones who inherit salvation, believers. That's you and me. Salvation lifts us higher than angels. So Jesus is greater than angels. Therefore, his message his revelation is superior. Jesus brings the whole truth. And the only way for us, broken, we're all broken, the way for us to become whole is through Jesus, Jesus alone. So listen to Jesus, walk with Jesus, don't look anywhere else or try something else or add anything else. Walk with Jesus alone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are majestic and good and great and loving. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these words, this word of yours that uh, teaches us and gives us understanding of the written word of the living word, Jesus. Jesus, may this semester we see you more clearly, bigger, in the book of Hebrews. May our faith be strengthened. May these ladies in this room be enlightened as they look at your word. And as we walk with you, Lord, give us that grace to walk with you alone. We love you, Lord. We love you. Bless these women in a mighty, mighty way. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen.